They are making me put a warning label on this podcast talking about adult language and adult situations. First of all, these kids are already adults. They've had phones in their hands from the time they were four years old. They're watching porn, they're smoking, they're cussing, they're having sex. But I have to warn them about my podcast? <laughs> Whatever. Electrocast. And then he goes back in the bag and pulls out a gun. Welcome to Nightmare Road Stories, where we visit with our favorite entertainers and listen to their craziest stories on the road. I'm your host, Alicia Keaton, and today we have one of my personal favorites and a friend, Mr. Roy Wood Jr. You guys know Roy well, hello. everything, so for me to sit here and list all his credits, it would take up my whole show. Roy is Just say I've been on cable. <laughs> Roy is I've been on cable. Um, I've been on a couple network things and I was on PBS one time. <laughs> well, you know you made it when you make it to PBS. <laughs> Y'all, Roy's very first special, I was laughing so daggone hard on his very first special. Roy did it the right way. By the time he did his first special, it was one of those knock it out the park. There was nothing lukewarm about this special. There was nothing mediocre about this special. Every time I go into like a Best Buy, one of those stores, and they ask me if I want the bag, I just bust out laughing at Roy. We can't just walk out without no, you know. So, I mean, he's brilliant. He's genius. And I just want to welcome him to Nightmare Road Stories. Thank you so much, Roy, for doing this. Well, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this during the pandemic trying to entertain the masses <laughs> yeah. without pain. I mean, what else can we do, Roy? I went nine months with no bottoms on, just doing Zooms. I was Winnie the Pooh in it. You know, so I, I, had, I haven't stood up since <sighs> I'm a okay. sit-down comedian. <laughs> I'm going to need you to watch the cushion of that chair, but that's a conversation for another day. Just got just booty juice, just just dribbling. Booty all over juice that damn all t- over the chair. Just booty juice dribbling. But you know what? Hey, <laughs> it adds to the ambiance. <laughs> okay, you believe that if you want. That's why I don't buy shit off Craigslist because you don't know who be sitting. Certain stuff you can't buy secondhand, and cloth chairs you can't because you don't know who raw dog in their chair. No, no, I bought a used con. I told them the only way I'm going to take is that take this cloth and turn it into leather, and then I come back. And they did. They upgraded the leather. I don't want nobody else farting on spikes on cloth. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> agree. But, Roy, remember we first met and we got to work together at the Baltimore Comedy Factory, the old one, and we had to go upstairs to perform in over the restaurant. Yeah. Those were the good old days. Roy was such a serious comic because I learned a lot just by watching Roy. You were come with your your uh, tripod and your camera and you that was back in the day where the cameras was much bigger than that. Roy be setting up like new channel eight. But you were serious though. Roy had his notebook he had all the page like he was at the back of the notebook. He was like page 350 of the yeah. notebook. Looking at the note I said this dude is gonna make it. He is in it to win it. And I mean you <laughs> always been professional just ahead of everybody else man. Just oh my I tried during those days, and even now, I don't do it. I'm more audio record now, but you got to see what you're doing right. 
You know, you got to see whether or not you're doing something properly. And if you're not watching yourself, how are you getting better? If you're not listening to yourself, how are you getting better? If you're not keeping track of the jokes you told. And then for me, the order in which I told them, like I kept the notebook. The notebook wasn't for jokes as much as it was the rundown of each show. So I could go back and like I had, you have your joke book with your jokes, but then at the club, I would bring a rundown book and the rundown book was the sequential order in which I performed the jokes each show over the course of multiple cities. And I could go back and go, all right, this joke did well after this joke, but this joke doesn't do good down here. Let's see what happens if I move it ahead of this. Joke. So just the scientific method of figuring out where in the act should you reach each topic mm-hmm. was kind of what I was playing with. You know, in those days. And that's still, that's a moving target. It's nothing you ever perfect, but, you know, it's just something that I enjoy trying to figure out. There's a psychology to stand up beyond the writing mm-hmm. that I enjoy trying to figure out at all times. And what was that you were doing before stand up? Hell, I was in college. Mm-hmm. I, when I started comedy, I was 19. I was a junior in college at Florida A&M, and I was on the road during the summer, and then during the school year, I would sneak an open mic when I could. I'd hop the Greyhound bus to go wherever I could get to, you know, to try and, you know, get a little bit of stage time. Like, that was that was my move. And then when I got out of college, that's when I kind of started hitting the ground really running, because all I did every summer was chase road work, so I didn't do any internships in journalism. So when I got out and I got my journalism degree, I couldn't get no real job offers because I hadn't done shit in college other than campus radio stuff, for real, for real. So it made going into stand-up kind of the more sensible thing to do. And that's when I, looking back on it now, I go, oh, that was a two-year internship for comedy. That's what I was on. So, you know, it's hard for me to give advice to to new cats on how to start, especially if you got a family and kids and bills. Because when I started in 19... I had to cover $375 rent and expenses. That was my share of rent and expenses total was 375 funky ass dollars. And I could knock that out at the Golden Corral, you know, just working, you know, 20 hours a week during the week. So on the weekend, any money I made on the road, that would be Sinbad. Sometimes it would be, um, it wasn't Comics Come Home, that's Dennis Leary, but there was one before that with Whoopi and Robin Williams and like all of the 80s vets. And I would watch that comic relief. So it would be comic really stand-up specials and sometimes it would be George Carlin. So every year I saw somebody different and that kind of planted the idea. Then Comedy Central came along and then in the 90s, that was the TV boom of stand-up where you had, you know, A&E's Evening at the Improv and Comedy Central had the A-list with A.J. Jamal, stand-up, stand-up with Wally Collins and then Def Jam came in and BET's Comedy. So by the time I got to college, I felt like I was funny. I'd never tried stand-up. And when I was doing journalism, um, we one of the course requirements in journalism at Florida A&M was to take a public speaking class. Part of the public speaking curriculum was to do improv, improv impromptu speeches, which knowing what I know now, that was an improv exercise. It was to teach you how to filibuster on a topic you didn't know shit about. And so you would get up in front of the class and the teacher would give you the topic. You would stand to the side. You had 90 seconds to prepare a presentation for the class on a topic you just found out about 90 seconds ago. And somewhere in that five minute presentation, I would get a laugh. And like, that was the first hit 
That was the first hit of standing up in front of essentially strangers. And at first it was making them laugh was an accident. And by the end of that month, when we were doing that exercise, I was kind of like in my head, I'm going, all right, if I can get a laugh here, that'll buy me enough time to get to this next point. And if I make them laugh, they won't realize that I ain't talking about shit. And that became the goal. And so from there, you know, open mics and all of that other shit just kind of, you know, it just kind of all started falling into place, you know, at that point. Wow, that is so interesting. Really, every comic truly has their individual experiences because when I started, I didn't know that people were writing material because they made it look so easy. <laughs> so I jumped on stage with nothing prepared because I just thought that's what everybody was doing. And I ate it like mm-hmm. I should have. You know, so it's like everybody's start is just so different. And for you to be so young and even know what you want to do. And then, like you said, you didn't do an internship. So now you're in the thick of things and you're actually doing this. So once you graduated, you just continued on with the stand up. Yeah. Once I graduated, I just kept on doing stand up like that was the easiest most sensible path for me so when I was in school I we stole some blue jeans when I was like 18 or whatever and so I got suspended from school for a semester for you know for bad behavior and essentially with no classes to go to and seven thousand dollars worth of financial aid that was supposed to pay for classes that you're no longer taking well then motherfucker this is gonna be my front money to start doing comedy so I was able to go hard as fuck from the jump Uh, and, and you have to remember in the south open mic is one day a month in most cities mm-hmm. in the South at this time. Uh, the only weekly open mic in the South was St. Petersburg, Florida at Coconuts Comedy Club. And at, at in St. Petersburg at Coconuts Comedy Club and in Atlanta at um, Uptown. So those are the only weekly open mic. Everywhere else, you're on the Greyhound going and auditioning and doing all of that stuff. So by having a lot of free time and at least a little bit of front money, granted it's student loans, you have to pay it back. But at that time, that was that money was a godsend, man. Like 100% godsend. And so how long did so. it take you to go from MC to feature then feature to headliner? I don't know. You know, I've talked with other comedians about that and like that concept of going from MC to feature to headliner. I think a lot of it boiled down to um, each club perceiving you differently. You know, a lot of that boils, you know, there's certain clubs where I've only featured or better my entire career. And then there's some clubs where I've only headlined or better because that's what I chose to present myself as. But I'd say I'd say the three year mark, I started getting more feature work here and there (laughs) where rooms I've been working for three years, I was featuring, but new rooms I was breaking into, I was emceeing. And traditionally it took two to three years per market to graduate. So naturally as you expand your reach throughout the South, you're featuring in more clubs that are in the nucleus closer to Birmingham, but in those outer those outer orbits, you're emceeing because you're just getting your foot in the door, you know. So it just it just it differs, you know. I just think for every comedian, you know, that path is a little different. The road is it, it, growing, developing as a comedian on the road is just way different than 
just living in San Francisco or Chicago and going to mics until you're good enough to go feature or headline or open for whoever the hell on the road. I just think it's just it's just a different situation. But for me, um, I, I'll tell you when I when I made the decision to stop featuring for certain people. And that's the thing that a lot of comedians are going to have to like eventually deal with is sooner or later you have to say no. If you believe you're this, but they only want to treat you like this, you have to start saying no to this to be treated, you know, as something greater. And that's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you gigs. It's going to cost you. We had to be like, you know what? I'm just not coming back. This person has me in this space that I'm no longer in. I'm showing this person all the other places I've been headlining. I'm sending the flyers, but I'm not good enough to headline here. I'll tell you a story about that shit. Mm-hmm. So, oh five, right? Yeah. So the thing, the thing when I when I started, I started in 1998, and from 98 to about oh five, from 2001. I've been blessed enough since 2001 every year to get a television credit of some sort. No matter how small, I figured out a way to get on television every fucking year. And the thing that they always told us was the white bookers. I'm talking about mainstream clubs where a lot of the money was. I didn't come up Chitlin Circuit. I worked black rooms, but I worked everywhere because I wanted to perform every week. If you're trying to do this for a living in the South, you got to perform for the old people down in the Biloxi casinos. And then on Tuesday night, you fucking with the hillbillies over in Fort Walton Beach, over in the Panhandle. And then Wednesday night, you're in Macon, Georgia for a bunch of Tom Joyner Cruz, Kango hat wearing ass niggas. So you had to, you had to, you know, be diverse in your styles. So the same thing everybody told me no matter the demographic was you need the TV credit man I would uh, love to pay you I would love to but you got TV credit you ain't got no TV credit you know you ain't got TV credit man it's working it's hard to book you because people need a reason to come in and want to see you <laughs> so from so from 01 so from 01 to 05 and I don't say this to brag I'm just telling you what the resume was I do Comic View for three years. I do Kiki Shepard. This is so so aside the point. Apparently, Showtime at the Apollo had a falling out with Kiki Shepard. And Kiki Shepard went off and did her own version of Showtime at the Apollo called Live in Hollywood. So I've done Comic View three years. I've done Star Search and made it to the semifinals. I've done Comedy Central's Premium Blend. I've done Live in Hollywood. And I think at that point, I just started doing Comics Unleashed. Now, these aren't all stellar credits. But these are, from a diversity standpoint, I've done CBS talent show, I've done Comedy Central, and I've done hood shows. So what the fuck else do I need to work your fucking city to get promoted from feature to headliner? And so, so 05, right? There's a, there's a middle ground, that, and I'm sorry to give so much backstory, but for the people who don't understand stand-up and the way promotions work within this industry, before a club owner will give you a headlining set on a weekend, sometimes they will let you headline during the week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that's the softer nights. People didn't pay as much money, so if you trash, it ain't that big of a 
deal because you only paid $9 to get in this motherfucker. <laughs> and on the weekend, you get demoted to opener and you open for the bigger name act. This is called co-headlining. This is the next level up from featuring. Just for a pay scale measurement, a feature act who comes in and does 30 minutes a night for a five-night week probably gets $500. You know, maybe 600 if you've been doing it a while and they respect you to give you a little bump. A co-headliner would make $900, $900 to $1,000. You're doing a split week. It's a lot of fucking money. It's a lot of money. Yeah, split weeks is what they're also called. Correct. Yeah. So... So I had clubs where I was featuring that were starting to offer me split weeks for $900. Mm-hmm. And so that's an opportunity to get better. So I would book feature work for $500. And then every now and then a club would call me and say, hey, you want to do a split week this week? And I go, hell yeah. So I called a $500 nigga and I go, I'll get with you next time. I'm going to go get these extra 400 funky ass dollars because I need to eat. Right. And they go cool. No problem. But that's messed up that you can't because you ain't supposed to cancel because you're just supposed to be a gracious, appreciative ass motherfucker that you would even think so kindly of me to give me a week of underpaid performance. I sure appreciate that 500. No, fuck you. I'm trying to grow. Motherfucker talking about nine hundred dollars. You talking about five hundred dollars? So I'm gonna holler at you. So there was a booking company that booked multiple cities, and one by one, over the course of the year of two thousand five, I cancel every gig with them because I'm getting offered co-headlining sets. I'm getting offered split weeks in other markets. I'm trying to grow. Two thousand six comes around, right? Mm-hmm. I get the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is essentially, which is essentially the NBA draft of stand-up comedy. I don't even know what to compare it to in sports terms, but you know, it's the NBA draft. If you're invited, it's the NFL Combine. If you're invited to this and you do well, your career skips a level. I go to Montreal. I get booked on David Letterman. I do David Letterman that same year. I go to this booker at the beginning of 2007 and I go, hey man, you said I needed to get credits. I got credits and you didn't even bump me up to split weeks off of all those credits. And, you know, I'm sorry that most of 06, I canceled, you know, feature dates with you, but that's because other people were offering me split weeks because of my credits. Now, now I have Letterman. This is fucking David Letterman. There is nothing more important than David Letterman. Can I please, sir? Can I please, sir, have a split week? They go, nah, we ain't sure about booking you anymore because you cancel too much. You're unreliable. And I go, all right, man. So I guess that's that. And I've never worked for this company since. Yeah, yeah. I've never worked for them since. I believe I But it's the lack of it's the lack of understanding that I canceled because you never respected me. And when I found people that respected me, I jumped money and opportunity is all I respect. There's nothing on some sort of handshake and humbug where I'm supposed to fucking, well, you gave me this date, so I should honor it no matter what. When we both know if somebody more famous than me asked for my weekend, you would fucking cancel me with no money in my pocket. Fuck out of here. 
the game is the game, coach. Yeah, I mean, this so, is business. This is business, you know, this is all business. I don't even understand, but yeah, it's they like don't that. see it as that. They don't see it as that. So you know, yeah, yeah, it's it's always something. It's always something. But but uh, success is the biggest reward. <laughs> oh, they they happy for me now. They send messages all the time. We're just looking happy for you. And yeah. We just want you to know that we always believed in you. Knew that you can do it. I always believed in myself and I knew it too. <laughs> I don't even take offense to it though, Coop. I don't even take offense to it because there are a lot of people that are stuck in where they are because of who they are and you just got to respect that that's just who they always going to be and getting mad at them ain't doing nothing but dragging down your day because they're never going to change Yeah, it's been 22 years you're still the same motherfucker I hear the stories from all the comedians that have come after me yeah. so I know you haven't changed mm-hmm. so me getting mad or me giving you some speech or something that's not going to change who you are I just recognize where you are within the comedy matriculation and you're there to teach comedians a valuable lesson. And the ones who are smart will absorb the lesson and grow. The ones who don't will continue to work $500 weeks and turn down $900 opportunities for growth. Yeah. And, and then wonder why that. ain't shit changed for them. So whatever, man. Yeah, sometimes you have to, says, there comes a point where you have to bet on yourself. And that's what you did. And that's why you... Oh, now don't get me wrong. I starve like a motherfucker that next year because I wasn't working for them. <laughs> Ooh, I miss some meals now. <laughs> I miss some meals by telling them no, but I just I couldn't do it no more, man. I just I couldn't do it. But you stayed the course and you stayed focused. For so for any comic that's listening to this, there's a lesson in that. Just stay the course, believe in yourself, and stay focused. You will have some uh, lean times. <laughs> you gonna cry in the car repeatedly. <laughs> We're going to come back with more Roy Wood Jr. When we come back, Roy is going to tell us his nightmare road story. So stay here. But I walked in this, this spot, man, this dude was cussing out the whole store. Swore it was racism. And I'm not saying that racism wasn't one of the causes for him getting bad service. I'm just saying he jumped to that conclusion a little fast. He didn't go through the progressions. <laughs> he ordered a six-piece nugget. And it was five nuggets in the box. Swore <laughs> it was racism, man. Y'all stole my nugget. Tired of white folks. <laughs> white folks don't want us to have shit. <laughs> Nugget. Then he gonna turn to me. You see this shit, brother. You see the government. It's our nuggets today. It's our children's nuggets tomorrow. If I was white, I'd have got seven nuggets. And that's when I backed off. I'm like, I can't help this dude. I'm like, look, bro, I know you're mad and there's a lot of racial tension in the world, but this ain't racism. This is a fast food spot at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Some of them folks back there can't count to six. <laughs> you want six nuggets, you need to order a four-piece and a two-piece. <laughs> That's how you trick their ass and get two sauces for free. Yeah. <laughs> 
Roy, oh my goodness. Uh, oh my goodness. Your stuff is just, I love it. It's on another level. It's exactly what we need right now. I love the fact that you can perform in every kind of room. You know, I used to study Todd, the late Todd Lynn. And you know, Todd yeah, used to late great. And I was like, man, Todd would kill. He go to a completely different area and kill. And that's what you do. And I, I mean, I just, I just love you, love your stuff. But I wanna um I wanna talk to you about one of your nightmare road stories. You know, we all have them as comedians. I told mine in the pilot episode. I would love to hear one of your crazy stories on the road. So there was a gig. I told the story. I told it one time on This Is Not Happening, but we can get to a little more of the details here. All right, so I used so one of the like when I was talking to that point about Todd Berry, right? When you're doing a bunch of different shows around the South for different groups of people, essentially what you're doing also is performing sometimes for shady individuals. And so there was it was not uncommon for me to do a show for dope boys sometimes right mm -hmm. and so the, the way dope boys would do it and you know like like the way the way dope boys would do it is like you know there were a lot of guys that would put on rap concerts or whatever like let's say you're a drug dealer right mm -hmm. and let's say you need some money to get back in the game you know you, somebody took your product or you just need some front money to go from bag man to scarface you're trying to level up your empire right right the quickest way to do that or you know, one of the ways to do that is to hold a concert, you know, music, comedy, whatever. Sometimes it'd be a comedy show. So what niggas would do, they would do a comedy show, pre-sale tickets for the comedy show, take the pre-sale money, buy a brick of whatever they, you know, whatever they're going to flip, flip the brick before the comedy show and then pay the talent with the profits okay. from selling the brick. You with me? I'm with you. Solid business plan. It's a simple way to get front money and capital to reinvest into your drug empire. Makes perfect sense mm -hmm. if you can sell the dope before the show. Uh. Dope in Alabama. We get to the show. And when we get there, they ain't sold the dope yet. <laughs> And keep in mind, they they can't cancel the show because that would mean refunding the money to the audience, which you also don't have because you ain't sold the dope yet. So, so they come in the green room. One of the cats come in the green room and he goes, hey, man, listen, we ain't we ran into a situation with this brother down in down there in Florida. Nigga was supposed to come up here and cop the brick. He can't come till next Thursday, but <laughs> we need y'all to still do this show. Right? <laughs> we ain't got no money to pay y'all, <laughs> but we still need you to do this show, right? And this is what we gonna do. Y'all gonna do the show and then we gonna send you your money via Western Union. 
next Thursday mm-hmm. when the nigga come up from Florida to buy the brick. <laughs> now, I'm I'm just an opener. I'm only supposed to get like 50, 60, 75 dollars off this gig. It's in the big deal to me. And me and the other comedians, he goes, y'all think about it and I'll be back. He walks out the room and me and the other comedians, we all huddles. What you going to do? What you going to do? What you going to do? And the headliners, knowing what I know now, the headliners immediately, they were like, I'm going to do it. I don't have, because this, this, these, some of these dope boys are connected to other folks and it's a lot of show money to be made performing for local promoters. I almost don't even want to say that they were just, that all of these janky shows, all these, you know, janky black promoter shows was just dope boys. Sometimes it was just a regular ass promoter, but your name is still riding on working with this particular person in this market. Word will get out to the other markets that you, you know, left them hanging, right? Right. Your reputation is important. So, so I decide I'm not doing the show. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing the show. I'm not performing for free. You're not gonna, you know, all that integrity shit. Remember, man, that nigga ain't gonna pay me, motherfucker. Had to pay me. You can't pay me. You shouldn't be doing no damn show. <laughs> Promoter come back in, and there's like five comedians. Three of us are a no. Two are a yes. Okay, so what y'all decide, man? What, what's it gonna be tonight? I say, look, man, you know, I appreciate the offer and everything, but, you know, I just, I wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, without leaving with something. Like, can you give me $25 or the 50? Like, y'all ain't got nothing. Like, I understand you ain't got a G to pay your headliners. I understand you ain't got 800 to pay his opener, but I'm getting $50, bro. Y'all down there selling drinks. Y'all ain't, can you just give me, we ain't got that. We ain't got none of that shit. I check it. This is what we going to try to do. This, let's do this, right? <laughs> and he motions to this nigga named Oak. And Oak was this big ass dude. They called Oak because he was like built like an oak tree. One of them big old linemen looking ass niggas. Mm-hmm. Oak come in, put the bag on the table. Boom. He zip open the bag, unzip the bag. And he pulls out a fucking kilo of fucking cocaine and sets it on the table. And then he goes back in the bag and pulls out a gun. (laughs) And the promoter, he's standing next to Oak. All right, this is what it's going to be tonight. All right, listen. Y'all going to get one of these two things on this table tonight, okay? So if you want... Holla at Oak, and he'll pinch you a little bit off the brick. And you can take that and flip it and sell it yourself. And you'll make twice what I was going to pay you tonight. And and then he points to the gun. He goes, otherwise, y'all know what it is. Let me know what you decide. (laughs) Oak puts the kilo back in the bag. He put the gun back in the bag, zip it up. They leave the room. So we huddle up again. And I'm like, nigga, I'm not finna get murdered over no goddamn comedy show. And I'm also not leaving here. I'm not gonna leave here with dope. I don't know shit about dope. I've never, I've seen cocaine. I've seen people, I've been in a room where people have been doing cocaine, but 
I'd never just seen a pure brick. And then I never held cocaine. I've never in my possession physically held a bag of cocaine. So I wouldn't even know how to sell this. I literally don't even know. Like, do you even have bags to bag this shit up in, bro? Like, what the fuck? So, so at this point, I've made the decision I'm going to leave, but now I have to escape. <laughs> so I go to the door to the lead the green room. At this point, it's like it's like five minutes till showtime. And the promoter, he's on stage. Y'all ready for the show? The comedians back there, they ready for y'all. It's going to be a good time. And blah, blah, blah. I told this nigga, oh, that I need to go to the bathroom. Now I went down to the bathroom. I hid in the bathroom for five minutes. And then I fucking bounced. I got my car. I turned my phone off. And I drove back to Birmingham. Because I just wasn't going to... I just wasn't going to deal with, I just, I didn't feel comfortable performing in exchange for narcotics. And I know you're not going to Western Union me, so I'm not going to do the show for free. Y'all on some bullshit. I get home, I check my voicemail. I've got like 11 voicemails from the promoter calling me all types of, you know, <laughs> yeah, I ain't, ain't going to repeat everything, but he, he called me some words, you know. We trying to put on for the city and show you Birmingham niggas some love and you niggas. This how you repay me by embarrassing me in front of my city like this. I put on a show. I put my name on that show. People trust me to deliver on my name and you ruin my name. Nigga, I put you on the flyer. That was the thing he kept saying. <laughs> Just made me laugh because he's like, I put your picture on the flyer and now that I'm older, I understand what he was trying to convey. I made a contract with the public on my name, and then you didn't show up, which makes me look bad. So that's fucked up, and I'm going to call you 11 times over the course of two hours <laughs> to, to get that point through to you. So that's that's like Friday, Saturday night, right? Mm -hmm. this, is in, this happened in Dothan, Alabama. So about about a I don't know, about a week goes by or something like that. Maybe it may have been a couple days. I don't remember the day of the week the next week, but um at this point I'm doing morning radio in Birmingham. And I tell the story on the air about the Dope Boy show. You know, hey, you know, I did this show, dude pulled a gun on us. He threatened to kill me, then offered me cocaine. I didn't know which one. It was crazy. Phone line lights up. Answer the phone. 95.7, morning show, what's up? Hey, uh, let me speak to Roy. <laughs> the way, uh, there's so many layers to this story, but like, at the right time of day, depending on cloud coverage and the temperature, radio signals travel further than what they normally do in their transmission range. Right? Like, like a radio tower may transmit for 80 miles on a traditional day, but if the weather's right, it could transmit 100 miles. Them 20 miles is a huge fucking difference between the radio signal reaching other parts of the state where you think people can't hear you talking shit about them on the radio. 
this motherfucker heard the whole conversation. He goes, yeah, I just want to let you know that we gonna rise up above crabs like you and shady motherfuckers like you who ain't down with Alabama and trying to help Alabama promoters when they in a pinch. It's all good, baby. Anyway, I'm at Western Union right now dropping off everybody's money. So fuck what you talking about. And he hung up in my face. He really did it. He really sent everybody their money after the dude from Florida came up to buy the cocaine. Wow. <laughs> that is one of the most one of the most honorable people I've ever met <laughs> was a drug dealer in Dothan, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> and how far is Dothan from Birmingham? It's about two and a half hours. Okay. It's uh you know, you can make it in two okay. if you really you know, if you really whipping, but okay. It's, you know, it's out in the country and, you know, and it's, it's a great town. It's close to a military base and the people there, blue collar, they work hard. So the, it's one of the markets where people come out and laugh. Mm-hmm. The show was sold out. Don't get it twisted. It was a good ass. It would have been a good ass time. I just never. That's that's one. You ever had that one that one moment in your career? You'd be like, I wish I could make that one right. That's what I was going to ask you. In hindsight, do you wish, wish. you had done the show? I should have just done. I should have done the show for free <laughs> it, because I was trying to be all on my high horse, and that's just inheriting the energy yeah. of your predecessors yeah. that pay me. I don't do no show for free, nigga. I'm 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 Jimmy Dean. You don't like, and screw over Jimmy Dean. You give Jimmy Dean all his money before he hit the stage, and I wasn't funny enough to be. You know, sizing it up. I, you know what it is. You're doing a show for somebody that might be kind of shady, and sometimes it's jank town. Sometimes you ain't gonna get your money, but you still get stage time. You still got an opportunity to grow in the market. And when that dude does have money for real, he's gonna treat you right on the comeback. Because the one thing about promoters and club owners is that they never forget when you get them out of a pinch. And that's somebody that could have that could have owed me a favor down the road or done something for me down the road you know you, you should you should never if you can do it if you can look and understand their drive and what they're really working towards i don't think you should ever turn down an opportunity to do a favor for somebody that's a real hustler mm-hmm. and after that that's somebody radio, you're gonna see again that's what i was you know? gonna ask after the radio experience did you ever bump into him or see him again at all no, I I stopped going to Dothan. Why the why the fuck would I go back to Dothan? <laughs> so you done canceled all of Dothan. <laughs> yeah, I said I'm going back to Dothan because somebody else gonna put me on the flyer, and then he will see the fly. Oh, I see you back, right? Okay. I just wanted to come to the show and say what's up, nigga. Okay. <laughs> Also, in my defense, he shouldn't be that mad that the $50 opener drove off. I wasn't doing but 10 minutes. It wasn't like I threw off the whole show. It'd be different if I was the headliner. All right, fine. Be mad. Right. Come on, man. This, that ain't but, see, the, but it was the cocaine and the gun for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm already going. But see, but on the one hand, you think it's intimidation. Right. But if I know how to sell cocaine, that's a good deal. That is a good deal. If I'm supposed to make $50 and you say I could leave with $150 or raw and step on it and flip it a couple times, yeah. that's not a bad lick. 
Right. I think that is a fair fucking <laughs> trade. Like, he offered collateral. It'd have been no different if, because his was crazy. If he'd have offered me like a gold watch or something instead of cocaine, I probably would have taken it. Right, right, right. But I, what I'm not going to be is in jail for eight years for possession because I didn't want to wait on $50 for a week. <laughs> but a whole different ending <laughs> to this. Story. Exactly. Like I had already used my get out of jail free card with Jesus. So I'm not going to risk that no more. I don't play by, I don't play by my freedom. I play by a lot of stuff. I don't. Mm-mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. And that's why you that. <laughs> but I want to do this thing with you when we do this uh, this thing where we ask a couple of little rapid fire questions and just get your answer. Okay. Um, so how many times have you considered quitting comedy? I don't know how many times, but I'll say I think about it regularly. I'd say... In the early days, there was a time where I ran out of gas. Well, a gig canceled on the way. I was headed to a gig and it canceled. And where I was in the country, I didn't have enough money to get back home because that gig was my gas money home. So I thought about quitting comedy that night at a truck stop. (laughs) And then, you know, there's time I've thought about it some this year, which is probably the first time I've really thought about it in probably the last 10 years. I wouldn't say I've thought about quitting. I thought about trying to constantly figure out a way to reinvent what it is we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's more where I am is trying to figure out, okay, the COVID's closed down the comedy clubs. Where are people going to go to get laughs for the next, you know, five, six months until there's a vaccine and the country opens back up? Like, what, what's going to be the new thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But just the concept of just doing comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of days. I definitely think I need some time away from it to miss it, to appreciate it, to really come back with the right amount of vigor to attack the stage again. So I do think about taking a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris Rock said that too. Chris Rock says you got to go away for a while to figure out, you know, go live life then come back and report on the things you saw and, you know, report on your journey. Right. So right. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that. And have you ever had a jokes of yours stolen? Not that I can recall. Um, no. And if it was, nobody ever came back to me and told me. You know, I've been accused of some stuff that ended up being parallel thought, but I've been fortunate that the couple of times where someone said, you know, so and so got a joke just like that. I was able to talk to that person and we were able to figure out, oh, yeah, well, I wasn't trying to steal that. Yeah, okay, fine. And then I just dropped the bit. Uh, Anything that anybody's stealing from me, to me, I'll just take it as I need to work harder to be more unique. And if you're stealing jokes, you're so lazy that success probably won't even ever see you anyway. Like, you'd have to be Mencia level with it and just stealing from Hall of Famers your entire career (laughs) and just liven it up. But I can't think of many 
When we talk about stratospheric success, when we talk about industry, selling shows, acting, having real opportunities beyond just growing on the road and a couple of TV appearances, you can't, I can't name a joke thief, a known joke thief within our industry who has seen levels of success that weren't at some point middling. In my opinion, you know, Mencia is probably the biggest and most successful of them all. You know, there's some greats that make it and then they start stealing. That's weird. But no, I can't think of like like I had somebody come to me one time. I had a joke. I won't say what the joke is because the boy's still doing it. Uh, This nigga stealing from you. That nigga doing the same thing you're doing. Okay, cool. So, you know, I didn't notice, brother. We got a couple of mutuals. I get them. I, you know, I, I shoot the DM. We swap phone numbers. We sit on the phone. We parlay like a couple of men and went through the bit. And I go, oh, yeah, that's nothing like what you do. Because that's the other thing. You have a lot of people instigating in comedy. A lot of people hear the same two words and think that equals stealing. Right. Not realizing that you were just using the same verbiage to get to a different place. Right. Especially when the premise is the same and then the punchlines go two different directions. Yeah. You know, is that stealing? Is that clipping the bit? You know, it's arguable, but to automatically assume stealing out the gate, that's never my first move. I would give every comedian the benefit of the doubt and believe that it was parallel thought. We both saw the same thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then we go from there. Right. You know, with all this COVID material, it's going to be a bunch of niggas all saying that they thought of uh, the joke and the thing. And y'all all had the same experience. That's all it was. That's why Twitter is dope. Twitter is dope because you can run a premise through the search bar and see how many people are thinking on the same level as you. And if some nigga in Indiana with 30 followers can hit the same joke premise that you were thinking of, then you have to dig deeper. Yeah, just keep on going. Keep on going. Yeah, that's yeah. no longer your punchline. That's your premise. Okay. So because, you know, Mike Birbiglia said this and it stuck with me. Jokes only work when everyone agrees on the premise and then the punchline becomes the turn. So I think you use social media as a place to confirm mm-hmm. observations mm-hmm. and then put your own sauce on it after the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never even thought about it that way, but that is brilliant. That is because you just don't want to sound, you don't want your stuff to be too obvious. You know, too, cause Yeah, it, and that's it, what I'm saying. Is that any nigga that lazy that just still, I know you ain't got a script in you. I know you ain't got no show in you. I know you don't have the hustle to help other artists produce their content and sell their shows across networks because you're not willing to do the work because that's the shit you can't fake. That's the shit you can't steal. I ain't never scared of a nigga who ain't got hustle. Yeah, yeah. You need to have no hustle. Yeah. So you're a non-factor. You're literally not competition. You're not someone that I ever have to worry about, you know, competing against right 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 it's true i just yeah you get your bread and you'll put food on the table for your family good for you right but it's not gonna stop what i'm doing yeah yeah temporarily yeah yeah so growing up who would you say in your life was funny as you were growing up my mom was the funniest person i know still is hands down my mom and then second is um these three girls on my school bus, <laughs> they're most of them married now, so I don't even remember they fucking, I don't know they married names, but fucking Zakia Neely, Lashandra Sullivan, and Valencia Roper. 
them three motherfuckers every day. The school bus was a fucking comedy show, man. We used to crack on each other. We used to crack on people's cars. We'd slide the window down, make you slide down your window in traffic and tell you your car raggedy. But we on the school bus. <laughs> and whew, niggas used to be mad till you be heated. You riding around in a beater and a bunch of eighth graders that told you, a bunch of ninth graders that told you your car trash. <laughs> those, those, they were, those school bus rides, and I was never the funniest. I was never a class clown, but just in observing humor mm-hmm. and how it, how it manifested itself, I, that, that school bus, the back of Mr. Bradford school bus every day for four years to Ramsey High School, that shit, man. That shit was as good as Second City or UCB. Yeah, that's that's the way our school buses were too. We had a lot of fun. That was back in the day where you could fight without being called a bully. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it was a different Bus driver let you get a couple licks <laughs> before he say sit down. Yeah. Yeah, 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 hell yeah. And we would give you a name based off what, what whatever was going on. We had a guy in the seventh grade, he already had gray hair. So you know he was called Grady. Then on the bus in the eighth grade, this one guy had a roach crawling in his head on the school bus. So all the kids on the bus um, went over to the right side of the bus, sitting on top of each other like we done seen a tarantula, and it was a roach. But of course, on that day, he was a roach man. You know, so we we you know we oh. had our own thing going on too in Maryland. We could jump. <laughs> that's a that's a villain origin story. That's like I, the fact he didn't become a school shooter is amazing. <laughs> like that's yeah. Roach oh Ryan. my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's so insane, last man. question I want to ask you: If you weren't doing comedy, what else would you be doing? The plan before stand-up was to go to ESPN and try to be a sportscaster. I wanted Stuart Scott was my that was my that was the role model because when I saw Stuart Scott in high school and he talked hip hop but talked sports and he was funny, I said, "Oh, that's what I do every day at baseball practice and at the lunchroom table: sports and funny." Okay, what do I need to major in to do that? journalism okay cool well that's what i'm gonna do and that's that's it's either that or firefighter i always thought firefighting seemed like a cool job and i'm an adrenaline junkie and i like flames (laughs) yeah if you like pyro and being scared to death sometimes and then sometimes actually helping people and saving lives i think firefighter yeah. Covers all those bases. Yeah, good good benefits too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yo, I got a partner that's 38 and he got he hit his 20 year retirement. And he's good. Wow. He's good for yeah. life. Life is good. Life is good. Yeah. And so speaking like, of life is good, I can hear your little boy in the background, four years old. See, I knew you pre yeah. four year old. How's daddy yeah, life? You knew me. You knew me pre-child. Yeah. This daddy life is it's it's fine. <laughs> There's a I'll say this. There is a pressure that comes with parenthood that no one can prepare you for. And but I'll also say what I've done in the last five years of my career, I would not have done had he not been in my life. 
tap into something different and there's something about parenting that makes you a better version of yourself. If you're, if you're a parent that chooses to be present, of course, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's the parenting is the constant fear of wondering whether or not you're teaching them all the right stuff and how to walk them through the world. You know, how do you prepare someone for a world that is constantly changing? Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge of parenting. Hey, like you grew up with, give me a hug and give your grandma. And now I'm like, nah, man, you can't just go up grabbing and touching people. You have to ask for permission to enter people's space. Ask for a hug, ask for a handshake, offer a fist bump. Like little things like that, that will plant the seeds for respectability as a black man Mm -hmm. in this world, you know, down the road. So, right, right. Yeah, you know, yeah, then you got to watch who their friends are and who their influences are as they grow up. There you go. That's a set of responsibilities. <laughs> there you go. So you just got to pick one and keep it moving. Right, 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 right. Pick one every day. Well, what do you think about well, uh, giving your son a, the, a, the cell phone, the iPhone? How old is he going to be? I don't know. It, it'll be something new by then. It'll be some small computer chip in his forehead. <laughs> so we'll see, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right now, it's Paw Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> There you go right now, man. Let me go check on this boy. (laughs) Thank you so much, Roy Wood Jr. This has been awesome. That daggone dope boy story. That thing is so bad because I can see every step. I started sweating like I was was on the daggone lineup. That story is off the chain. (laughs) On our next episode, join me and our special guest, the bad girl of comedy, Lou Nail. Nightmare Rose Stories is a production of Electrocast Media. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our producer is April Simmons. Our editor is Jamal Holmes. Theme music by Emir Oshalai. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please give us a rating and tell your friends. If you don't like the show, please give us a rating and tell your friends. Until next time, I'm your host, Alicia Cooper, and keep your ears on the road. Electrocast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electrocast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today.
electric acid. 